again chapter 7 tonight as we look at this tonight we want to understand a couple things Paul has already said in verse 13 he says what was then that which is good made death unto me God forbid but sin that it might appear sin worketh death in me by that which is good that sin by the commandment might become what? Exceeding sinful. So the depth of sin could be now realized by the Apostle Paul. And before we go into the next few verses, beginning in verse 14, we want to understand tonight that Paul's spiritual death was not caused by the law. Paul's spiritual death was caused by the sin, the lust that was in him. And when we're talking in this text, again, we want to understand that Paul is not talking about the death that is uh, the damnation kind of death. He's talking about spiritual death, spiritual life. He He saw immediately he could not produce any spiritual life from himself because there was sin in him. And therefore, from that cup corrupt fountain, spirituality could not come. So he's saying in that context and practical sanctification is a miracle of God. God has to do it. He does it with us in partnership or cooperation with us. But he, we can't do it by ourselves. So that is where we come tonight in the text in Romans chapter 7 uh, verse 24 where the word of God says, Who shall deliver me from this body of death? And uh, we'll look at that in a moment after we read verses 7, chapter 7, 14 through 25. So now look carefully at this text because it's really a lot. Have you ever asked why God is redundant? Why God says so much about a particular thing? The reason why is that he wants preachers who preach through the whole Bible to keep repeating the same thing. Because a lot of times people don't get it the first time around. They don't get it the second time around. They don't get it the third time around. And sometimes it's four, five, six, seven times around. I know over the years as I studied out a personal portion of scripture and maybe have preached on it many times and I look at it and I say, well, why didn't I see that before? It's pretty apparent. Well, that's the way it is. And so God does that for us and he wants us to understand so here in Romans seven fourteen through 25, Paul uses himself to exemplify the spiritual paradox of having two natures. And of course, uh, we have a lot of folks teaching today the eradication of the sin nature, but that's certainly not scriptural. We certainly see it right here in chapter 7. So the born-again believer still possesses his old man. 
Although the old man is positionally crucified with Christ, thereby no longer retaining God's condemnation upon the individual soul. So we still have the old man, but the old man, as far as God's concerned, has been positionally crucified with Christ. The wages of sin, that is the old man's sin, is death in Romans 6.23. And those wages have been paid. They've been satisfied in the propitiation of God's wrath substitutionally in the body of Jesus Christ who bore our sins in his body on the tree. Although the old man of the born-again believer no longer retains any condemnation upon the soul of that born-again believer, the old man can still defile the practical sanctification of the believer. And so the will has to be yielded to God. The born-again believer also possesses a new nature. So he has a sin nature, a fallen nature, the flesh, the old man, these are all synonymous. But he also possesses a new nature, and that new nature is in the indwelling spirit of Christ. And every truly born-again believer is eternally, positionally, and perfectly sanctified before God in that God promises the born-again believer that the Spirit of God will never leave thee nor forsake thee, Hebrews 13.5. And... Uh, God also promises that the indwelling Spirit of Christ is God's guarantee. The Bible word is earnest, the earnest of the Spirit. Uh, and that earnest is of God's promises of eternal life and that the Holy Spirit of God seals that believer unto the day of redemption. That's a redemption of the body. Ephesians 4.30, we are sealed unto the day of redemption. Redemption of the body is in Romans chapter 8, verse 23. So the word of God instructs the believer then about the constant conflict between these two natures. That's what's going on in chapter 7 of Romans. These two natures are a battle going on. In Galatians 4.17 it says it like this. For the, for the flesh, that's the old man, that's the sin nature, lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to the one to the other. So that you cannot do that you would. He hinders us and keeps us from doing the things that we do. Now remember what Paul says. He says, that that I would do, that I do not. And he'll deal with that here in these next verses. But to understand the doctrine of sanctification, we must understand the constant strife of the two natures of the believer. It's often shown, you know, a little devil on this side and a little angel on this side. Well, the little devil, that's not literally a little devil. That little devil is in you. That's your old man. And it's not an angel. It's, a, it's the indwelling spirit of Christ. And these are contrary one to another. There's a battle going on constantly. So I looked at Romans 7, 14. We're going to read down through verse 25. I'm going to read down through verse 21. Word of prayer. It says, For we know that the law is spiritual. Do you know that? Well, you do now, because God just said it. <laughs> For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, Paul said. Sold under sin. What are you talking about? I still have 
of fallen nature. For what for that which I do allow not, for what I would, that I that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent it under the law that it is good. Now that all comes to by the inspired word of God, but uh, it sounds complicated, it's really not. He says, now then, it's no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would do, but the uh, for the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin, the fallen nature, the old man. That's the one that's doing and dwelleth in me. He doesn't like that. He hates it. But he's got. He's not always winning that battle. Now, um, I don't know. I, I'm going to raise my hand tonight and ask the question. How many of you here have a similar problem? Good. Those are all the rest of you are honest. The rest of you are lying. Now, that's just a fact. We all are struggling. We all have the same problem that Paul is talking about. Now, I'm glad that some people, uh, you know, uh, may not have it as much as some other people do, but we all have it. Now, let's have a word of prayer. Oh, God, I, I thank you tonight for Paul's honesty. We know, Lord, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, keeper of the law from, the, from his youth. Lord, uh, um, as touching the law, blameless, he says. But Father, he also now comes and he's honest because you've revealed to him his inner heart, what he has. And Lord, we, you do the same to us. We thank you for it. And Lord, we praise you and thank you for also the victory of the new nature that you've given us. And thank you for, he, for him in Jesus' name. Amen. I look to verse 21. Here's Paul's discovery. That's the battle he's got going on. That's the battle every one of us got, have got going on. He says in verse 20, I find then a law. Now, this could be also translated a principle. I find then a universal principle. That when I would do good, present is uh, evil is present with me. Even when I want to do good, there's still evil with uh, present with me. Uh, we might say it like this. Somebody has hurt us deeply. And our obligation is by God is to love them uh, with all our heart, soul, and mind. And so we try to do good. But yet there is that part of us that says, man, I like to punch this guy in the nose. That's part of it. And that's down and that's what really what Paul is talking about here. Evil is present with me. So we yield ourselves to the Spirit and do what's right. He says, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Even when I do good, there's evil is present. 
My evil is present. And then he makes this wonderful statement. He, he, he makes a statement of desperation. Then he makes a wonderful statement of victory. In verse 24 he says, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And then he gives the answer. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the old man, the law of sin. But who's going to deliver me from this body of death? This old man, this corrupted body of filled with lust. Who's going to deliver me? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now the zeal and doctrinal corruptions by the priesthood of Israel created a Judaism. Didn't exist before. This was after they returned back from the captivity. The Babylonian captivity. Who came back? Most of these were descendants of Zadok. The high priest who was the only one still qualified and, uh, of, of, for the priesthood. And of the 40 some thousand people who returned, almost all of those were priests, descendants of Zadok. And they came back about 430 years before Christ comes on the scene, called the 400 years of silence. That's between Malachi to the coming of John the Baptist. And during that period, these group, this group came back and they were very zealous for Christ, zealous for the law, zealous for holiness. But in term, about halfway through, that group of people divided into two different groups. Not necessarily completely in half, because one was a remnant. And they were called the sons of righteousness. And they were faithful to salvation by grace through faith and looking for the coming of the Messiah. The Pharisees wanted to protect their positions and wanted to protect themselves from becoming going into the captivity again. And so about half of these descendants or more followed this thinking of the Judaizers to keep the letter of the law to the strictest intent. And they transitioned into complete externalism, trusting now in the law even for their salvation. Of course, we must remember in their terms, salvation is very earthly and temporal. It's not necessarily eternal. So they had created something called Judaism. And that reduced the law to superficial applications in its intended uh, sanctificational purpose. It had become little more than a series of ceremonial rituals that involved individuals in equally superficial externalism. You know, you go to church and you have this done to you and this done for you uh, in the liturgical churches and you go home on Monday and live like the devil anyway and then you maybe go back again the next Sunday and get to do your God stuff and then live like the devil all week long and, and uh, that is how externalism works. This is what mere religion always does with the worship of God. Mere religion reduces relationship to rituals. And true internal spirituality from the heart to mere outward observance. Ritualism. 
It's easy. People like that kind of religion. Because it doesn't require any personal sacrifice or any kind of self-examination or any kind of relationship in any real way. But that was not what the law was intended to do. The law is spiritual, Romans 7.14. The law was intended to touch mankind at the very core and depth of his being. The law was intended to bring about deep conviction of sin and the knowledge of God's grace and, the, and, and his redemption and the promised one it was intended to typify. This conviction and guilt produced understanding the law by understanding the law was intended to generate genuine fear of God, heartfelt repentance, thanksgiving for God's grace and knowing that he received sacrifice, offered them uh, forgiveness and restored them back to fellowship. And then I hoped it would regenerate genuine loving worship towards God. Genuine praise and prayer and songs of thanksgiving and rejoicing. That doesn't happen when it's just a rituals. Go back again from where we were this morning in Psalm 19. And we'll look at verse 7 again. It says the law of the Lord is perfect. Now it has some intent. People begin to criticize the law. But here the word of God says the law of the Lord is perfect. What does it do? Well it converts the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. What's that mean? It, you, can, you can trust in it. It's a surety. Making wise the simple. It does something. The statutes of the Lord are right. But it does something. They're righteous. The rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Enlightening the eyes. What is it enlighten us about? Purity. The purity of God. The holiness of God. The purity is the absence of anything that defiles. The fear of the Lord is what? Clean. It's not defiled in any way. Enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And they says, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them as thy servant warned, in the keeping of them there is great reward. Why is it that people hate the law today, the moral law? Why is it? I'll tell you why. <laughs> it tells them exactly what they are. A wretched, vile sinner. And outside of the grace of God, that's all they ever would be. And without God's enabling, that's all they ever can be. Now we must remember that at the time of the writing of the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, I'm going to read that text. Verses 11 and 13, because we use this text in this context. This text, Romans 11, 4, 11 through 13, referred primarily to the Old Testament scriptures because that's all that were written. Now we know that the book of Hebrews was written prior to 70 AD at least. Most people believe in the mid-60s. 
And the reason why we know that is because the Jews that were professing to be Christians were being lured back to the temple. What happened in 70 AD? The Roman general Titus leveled it. <laughs> like this. That's exactly right. He leveled it. Christ said they would take and throw down every stone in that uh, temple. That is no small feat. I want to tell you that. Because those are megalithic uh, stones. So it was a great deal of effort. But they thought there was gold and things buried in the, uh, between the stones. And so that rumor was going on. So they went, literally, they spent days and months tearing down that temple from to the ground, except for the what we know as a wailing wall was all tore down. So we know that the book of Hebrews was still, was written prior to that because the temple was there. There'd be no reason to persuade the Jewish Christians not to go back to the temple and the Old Testament priesthood if they were still there. But after 70 AD, they were gone. So as we look at this text tonight, the word of God was and is a book of spiritual truths, defining God's will, touching our souls, moving our hearts. And this is great significance in the words, the law is what? Spiritual. The law is spiritual. That was what? Paul, and I believe the Apostle Paul, in chapter 4, 11 through 13, inspired by the Spirit of God, these words are, and he says, let us labor therefore to enter into that rest. The Jew lived out his whole life in incompleteness. And he's crying out every year on the Day of Atonement, crying out to God for complete propitiation. So it would be completely illogical for a Jew who believed that Christ brought that completeness, Colossians 2.10, to keep returning to something that was incomplete. So he says, let us therefore to labor, labor to enter into that rest. And that concept is, is the, the type of the Sabbath who is in, now in Christ. Labor to enter into that rest. That's faith on God's promises. Lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. And of course he's referring back to Kadesh Barnea. For the word of God is quick. It's life-giving. It's quickening. And powerful. And sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the dividing of asunder of soul and spirit. That was a great theological argument. Can the soul and the spirit somehow to be divided? Well, God's word says, yes, I can do that. I'm, I'm God. I can divide between the soul and the spirit. Of the joints and the marrow is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So he's talking here, the word of God, he's talking about the Old Testament books, the law primarily. And the law as an entity comes from God along with the spirit of God. Do you understand that? The word inspired means God breathed. So the 
theological argument for centuries. Did God simply breathe out the word of God or did God breathe into the word of God? And I say, yes. Both of those are true. This is an important part of the inspiration of the scriptures. God did not breathe out the scriptures and then abandon them. His spirit remains connected to his inspired, breathed out words. That's why the words not, we, we don't say the words of God was inspired. We say the word of God, what? Is inspired. The breath of God, the, the pneuma, which is the spirit of God, remains connected to his word. So the spirituality of the scriptures goes beyond giving instructions for living for faith. The spirit of God remains part of the law. That's why God says the law is what? Spiritual. What is he meaning there? The, the word of God, the spirit of God remains connected to the word of God. Always. We might go as far as to say God not only inspired his word, but that God remains in his word in the person of the Holy Spirit. And this is what makes the word of God quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of sunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, discerner of thoughts and the intents of the heart. I, people say to me, well, my family have shut me out. I said, well, there is a person that they cannot shut out. And if you learn to pray the way God wants you to pray, there's no door or there's no window that can block out. There's no distance too far that keeps God from moving on a heart and a life. Now, God's going to do it in his timetable, and God won't save people without his word. But, uh, you know, God can work through miracles and all of that. The word of God is constantly and eternally alive spiritually, in its synergism with the Holy Spirit of God. And God promises even uh, wherever, whoever shares his word, that his word will not return unto his void. So whether it's the worst heathen possible in the world, God can still, if that guy quotes some scripture, God can still use that scripture uh, and be a blessing with it. Now on the other hand, in that Paul still possessed a fallen nature, he as an entity was what? He was carnal. He was, of course, in his flesh. Now, he wasn't spiritual all by himself. God, Paul had to have the spirit of God in him, and God, he had to be yielded to that spirit before he could be spiritual. So Paul is using himself as an example of fallen humanity and sinful believers. Paul is referring to the fact that he had a fallen nature and that apart from unity what we call that fellowship with the spirit of God he was a carnal entity without any possibility of producing spiritual life. It's not an automatic thing. Simply because you're saved doesn't automatically make you spiritual. Paul explains his meaning in verse 7 Romans 7 18 he says for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. For the will is present with me, the want to, but how to perform that which is good, I, I find not. I can't do it. 
By the way, don't get discouraged once you've discovered that because that's right where God wants you to be. Because when you can come to God and say to Him, God, I can't do that. I need your help. That is exactly what He wants. That's what Christ is talking about in John 15. Without me, you can do nothing. And, uh, uh, you know, it's impossible for these to happen. So the subject of the text is spiritual warfare in, in which the believer is involved concerning his own carnal nature, hindering the production of spiritual life through synergism with the indwelling spirit of God. Paul exemplifies the fact that not only is he carnal as an entity, as a being without God, Otherwise, apart from God's help, he's always going to be carnal. But that the problem goes much deeper. He is what? Sold under sin. One of the first discoveries after being saved is to discover that salvation is not a magic wand waved over your lives that takes away our, our carnal nature and its voracious appetite for sin. I try to explain this every time I lead someone to trust in Christ and, and uh, call out to him to be saved, that when you get saved, life isn't going to get easier. It's going to get more difficult for you. Now you have an adversary. Prior to that, well, you really didn't have an adversary, but now you have two adversaries. You have the outward adversary, which is Satan. Now you have the inward adversary, which is your own carnal nature. And both of these are fighting against the Spirit of God. So salvation positionally takes away the penalty of the sin nature. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But the power of the sin nature is still very much within us. But we have to give him power. We have to allow him to have power. So the weight of the penalty of sin is once for all lifted from our shoulders. However, the guilt of our continuing desire for still sin is still very much with us. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 7. So the power of the sin nature will be a sin nature will be a problem in our Christian lives until we die or until our glorification when we'll be delivered from both the power and the presence of our sinful nature. Boy, am I looking forward to that day. You say, well, you can't get it unless you die. I'm willing to do that. That's not, not a bad deal. That's a pretty good deal. I'm, I get tired of it after a while, having to deal with myself. I'm my biggest enemy. I don't know about you, um, but I know I am. So until then, we, we still live in the slave market of sin. We're still living on, on the fall we're still living under the curse, even though we've been positionally delivered from it. Baptism of the Spirit has immersed us into the new Genesis, but positionally we still live under the fall. I don't know people say, well, you know, I'm saved now. I don't know why I'm sick. <laughs> I don't know why I got this horrible disease. Let me tell you why. Because you're still part of the curse in that sense in this world. And God's going to deliver you from it one day, but it's going to be through death. Now, death becomes a victory. Death is no more, no longer a sting. Death now is victory. 
That's a grand, great grand transition. So, but we have to choose if we will yield our will to the indwelling grace enabling within us. And if we yield to the sin nature within us, we thereby give it power over our wills. Now, I find myself doing that and justifying it. I find that when I'm driving down the road and someone pulls out in front of me and the words, man, what a jerk. And uh, I regret doing it almost immediately, but I find myself doing it again. That's what happens when you spend most of your life scheduling everything in 15-minute increments and someone just took away five minutes from you and you get all upset. But that's not just, we shouldn't justify that stuff. It's not right. So the good news is that due to the indwelling Holy Spirit of God, we've been given a choice. We've been given a choice as to who we will serve and to which of our two natures we will give power over our will. We determine the outcome of carnality or spirituality. We choose those by choosing to whom we yield our will. Who's going to be Lord over our will? When I accepted Jesus Christ as Lord, that's not the same as yielding to him as Lord. I don't believe in lordship salvation. That part of your salvation is yielding to the lordship of Christ. That's something you have to do every single day and every moment of your day throughout the rest of your life because you're going to be battling with that old man. So we determine whether or not we're going to be carnal or spiritual by choosing to whom we yield our will. Now, did Paul have great successes? I think it's pretty apparent that Paul had some struggles. He had personality struggles. One of those was with, with John Mark. And uh, we might say he had some problems initially with Peter and Barnabas. Probably rightfully so. Did he handle it well? I don't know. But he, you know, he did, uh, he did what he thought he had to do. But I don't think Paul was pleased with how he handled everything. I'm ashamed of the way I've handled many things in my life. Absolutely ashamed of them. And I can go to people and tell them I'm ashamed and ask them to forgive me. And uh, that's all I can do. But we all, we all have these same issues. So the inner battle is emphasized by the words of Romans 7.15. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. <laughs> we say, how could the Apostle Paul make a statement like that? Because he still had an old man. And he was honest and transparent. So the word translated allow here, gnosko, it means to know, perceive, or be aware of something. I, I'm aware of this. The meaning is that all humanity, saved and unsaved alike, are not aware that everything we do that finds its source in our fallen natures, even that we might think to be good and righteous, is really carnal. If it's not produced by the indwelling spirit of Christ, it's carnal. So the words I allow not would be better translated, I, I do not comprehend. I do not understand. Even though Paul was saved, his sin nature still hindered him from fully comprehending 
the impossibility of producing spiritual life out from his carnal entity, the old man. He couldn't produce it. It was impossible. And although he was saved, he was not yet glorified and not yet fully regenerated. He, uh, otherwise, he hadn't had the glorification as the final aspect of his regeneration uh, in his body. Certainly appeared to be an ir irresolvable problem, and it, and it would be an impossibility apart from the indwelling Spirit of God. But good news, he says, what? I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. Who can deliver me from this body of death? So the phrase I, that I do not, that I do not, within the phrase what I would that I do not, that do I not, is also a little bit jumbled, I think. The word do here from a Greek word prasso. It means to practice, perform repeatedly or habitually. And this is important in that Paul is saying the spiritual struggle is being spiritually consistent. That's my battle. I want to be spiritually consistent. But that's where my battle is. He, he, he wanted to be consistent in his spiritual life, but his sin nature was a constant hindrance, constantly leading him back to the pig trough of the world if not in actual acts of sin, at least in continuing desire for sin. And he was constantly aware of that desire. However, the opposite was even more a dilemma. The things the law had taught Paul to hate were the things he found in himself desiring and doing. We learn the word of God, and then we find ourselves doing the very things we hate. And we find ourselves doing it over and over and over again. And we get victory of it. I was telling a couple boys the other day, they, I said, just as soon as you think you got this all nailed down, just as soon as you got it all figured out, and you can say to God, you know, I really, I can do this now. <laughs> Look out. Because God's just going to take his hand away just for a little while. And you're going to find yourself up to your neck in the things that you hate. I'm sure how many years Paul fought this battle. He fought against the, the fightings without, fightings within his own heart and the fightings within the churches and the battles that was going on. And he said, I have, I have this great burden on my heart and it, it does but I think in chapter 7 of Romans, Paul saying, the greatest battle I have is with me. I am the greatest enemy I have to what God wants to do through me. When we get there, when we get to that place, we've come to the place where God exactly wants us to be. And we cry out to God in absolute desperation. I can't do this without you, Father. I can't do this. God says, good, good son. Glad, glad you finally got this down. Now don't forget it. And I'll be there with you. I will never leave you, never forsake you. I'll be right there with you through it all. That's a great promise of Christ, isn't it? All power is given unto me. 
Go ye therefore in all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. He's never going to leave. Even when you mess up, he's going to be right there to help you, to bring you back, to bring you back to the altar, to bring you back to confession, repentance. He's going to be right there. He's never going to quit on you if you are genuinely saved. And that's where we'll pick up next week. Are you here tonight and understanding these great truths? Oh, you, you've got something that a lot of people don't have. Understand the great grace. Understand that the greatest enemy you have in this world is you. And yeah, Satan can tempt. He can throw all kinds of fiery darts at you. Uh, he can uh, bring about wicked people who will try to lead your children and people astray. But the greatest enemy you have is you. And make sure you understand that. And yield that you to the indwelling spirit of Christ. Our Father God and we thank you for this text, very rich. We thank you that, Lord, you've used the Apostle Paul, but I know you could use every one of us as the same example. That, Father, we are but flesh. The things you ask us to do, we cannot do in our flesh. We have no power to do it. But we thank you for the indwelling spirit of Christ. And help us, Lord, to realize the great resources that are in him. And daily flee to your throne of grace whereby we can receive help in the time of need.